first of all, I'm going to introduce uh, Professor Eugene Ting, the Tim, who's a consultant haematologist uh, at Guy's and St Thomas's. And we've been working together running a sickle haematology clinic for, for many years. And I'm very grateful to him for presenting this guideline today. And again, we'll have questions on both the general ones at the end. Thank you very much, Will and Keith, and welcome to Eugene. Guideline on the management of sickle cell disease in pregnancy. My name is Professor Eugene Ting, Intim, lead author for this guideline. And I'm grateful to the whole team who came together to produce this guideline. Thank you so much, and thank you to PSH. Why should we have a guideline on sickle cell disease in pregnancy? Well, over 30 million people are living with sickle cell disease globally. 300,000 children born with the condition yearly. 75% do not see their fifth birthday. Very, very important. But in the UK, 98% reaches adulthood and hence pregnancy becomes very, very pertinent. 38% of our population in Southeast London are mothers who are black. One in four of these mothers are carriers for sickle cell disease. Important to therefore provide advice in terms of preventative measures for their offspring having this condition. Two-thirds are born in developing countries. Therefore, any intervention we should have, we should ensure crosses globally, with a third, particularly in Nigeria alone. Important to highlight that taking the life course approach is very, very important. And linking that to sustainable development goal allow us to seek funding into sickle cell disease care. 22 times the risk of dying if a woman has sickle cell disease compared to those without. Very, very important. 34% of the family income goes into the management of sickle cell disease-related costs within the family. Very, very important, therefore, that often their social class may also be affected because of their condition, in that absenteeism for, from school, unemployment, underachievement, because of this time spent in disease condition becomes very, very important. And these preventative measures make a huge difference in terms of coming into pregnancy. Does the answer in terms of preventing sickle cell disease lie in women's health. Very true. If you see any mother, any woman at risk of having a baby with sickle cell disease, offer that mother, be it a child, be it an adult, adolescent, be it an adult, important to highlight the need for pre-implantation genetic diagnosis in preventing an offspring with the condition. At least that offers the mother that choice. And most now come into pregnancy not knowing, and it's quite disheartening. If they do not know, how do they make that choice? There is no barrier about cost if they haven't had children before. So offering them that choice becomes very, very important. And you may say that take-home baby rate, success rate, may be a barrier. And this study published in the BJH alludes to the fact that Actually, success rate is almost 63% take-home baby rate when we actually only transfer, mean number of transfer, 1.3. And this is our data from Guy's and Symptomasis. Important to highlight that this truly offers our patients hope to embark on pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. 
Does sickle cell disease adversely affect the mother and baby? Yes, indeed it does. It affects obstetric-related risks such as preeclampsia, sickle-related risks such as infection, venous thromboembolism, acute chest syndrome, acute painful crisis frequency is much higher. Intervention is high, such as cesarean section. And it goes without saying anemia. It's therefore not surprising that the risk of mortality is quite high, almost 14 times higher in our mothers with sickle cell disease compared to those without, as shown in this current forest plot. We looked at our epidemiological data in the UK, a UCO study, which is a cohort study over a period of one year, alluding to 109 confirmed cases of sickle cell disease. The demographic in terms of age by and large is 25 to 40, but it's important to advise childbearing age earlier than 40 because the risk is much less. Four out of the 109 clearly went over the age of 40. And like two main genotypes for us to be aware, but it's important to manage them the same way in pregnancy. They come into pregnancy with significant risk of anemia, almost 6% of them having significant anemia under 70, almost 50% of them actually under 99. So important to address anemia in this condition. It's not surprising, therefore, the need for blood transfusion is high. A quarter of them needing blood transfusion, almost 43% of those with SS needing blood transfusion. The risk of acute chest syndrome is high, and that is associated with significant mortality. The risk of admission to intensive care unit is high, and clearly this saves lives. And if done timely, it's actually pertinent that it saves lives. Preeclampsia, much higher, almost twice the risk Urinary tract infection. Almost 20% of those with SS have urinary tract infection during pregnancy. 38% requires cesarean section. And this is because of the severity of the condition in pregnancy. This forest plot alludes to two to three times increased risk of preeclampsia. Perhaps important to look at the combined test, and most UK centres do have a combined test performed to screen for Down syndrome. Within that combined test is a test called the PAP-A. If the PAP-A level is less than 0.5%, it provides an extra screening tool to assess those who are at risk of stillbirths. And you may need to scan them even more frequently from 20 weeks onwards more than four weeks, but every two weeks for those with PAPE less than 0.5 in order to minimize the risk of stillbirth. It goes without saying four times increased risk of stillbirth, really important to address this throughout. And the risk of miscarriage is also quite high. This therefore alludes to the need for preconceptional care. Having small babies three times higher. So this guideline therefore covers the spectrum from pre-pregnancy, antenatal, intrapartum, and postnatal care. We've gone from the Royal College guidelines published in 2011, now to the British Society for Hematology guidelines published with a multidisciplinary team of hematologists, physicians, 
obstetricians coming together to produce this guideline. So a very important multidisciplinary group contributing to this and asking also for contribution from the Royal Colleges to ensure that it's robust uh, evidence-based guidelines. Pre-pregnancy mothers, we ensure that they should be fully vaccinated in terms of pneumococcal vaccine, meningococcal vaccine, hemophilus influenza vaccine, hepatitis B vaccine. The partner screening becomes very important. So if they are heirs, while some countries may advise them not to get married, here we can say that actually we offer the full choice. It's a democratic country. We offer the full choice, but it's within our remit to advise them that there is the option of pre-implantation, the genetic diagnosis with good success rate. We should assess for chronic disease complications, and hence echocardiography becomes very important, screening for pulmonary hypertension, blood pressure and urinal assessment, also liver function tests, renal function tests. They should have retinal screening and managed prior to coming into pregnancy. Most would have had blood transfusion and hence looking for red cell antibodies that could be measured during pregnancy in terms of teachers so that we prevent hemolytic disease of the newborn goes without saying. They should be on their prophylactic medication. Folic acid, not only is it good for their sickle cell disease, but also for preventing neural tube defect. Five milligrams once daily. Penicillin V, 250 milligrams twice daily. Only use iron supplement if you screen for ferritin and only if the ferritin is low, because by and large, our patients with sickle cell disease will have a high ferritin level. If their risk of preeclampsia is high, then they should be on low-dose aspirin. If given before 16 weeks, almost 50% likelihood of preventing preeclampsia up to 37 weeks. Clearly, once the mother reaches 37 weeks, Delivery is eminent, and you will reduce stillbirth as a result of preeclampsia. You will reduce mortality as a result of preeclampsia if you remember to give low-dose aspirin. 75 milligrams, 150 milligrams, it doesn't matter. Clearly, do give low-dose aspirin. And consider thromboprophylaxis. Here, I will go further, not to say only consider, but give thromboprophylaxis in terms of low-dose low molecular weight heparin, and we give it from 28 weeks or not if the risk factor is purely sickle cell disease, but if there is additional factor such as increase in age over 35, multiparity, more than two or three children, then important to give the low-dose aspirin from 12 weeks of gestation. They may be on hydroxycarbamide. They may be on ACE inhibitors important to stop it prior to pregnancy. If they come into pregnancy with these medications, just stop it. Don't even consider termination because the risk of teratogenicity in humans is almost negligible. Penicillin prophylaxis, this is the reason why we need to use penicillin prophylaxis in pregnancy. We should no longer do a randomized control trial in this in pregnancy because 13 times the likelihood of developing pneumonia in pregnancy in sickle cell disease compared to those without. We know penicillin prophylaxis prevents pneumonia in childhood 
why shouldn't it do so during pregnancy when the risk is so high? Often pneumonia may lead to acute chest syndrome. The risk of mortality is high. So giving penicillin may make an inroads, may make a difference in preventing pneumonia and in also preventing acute chest syndrome. 15% of those with sickle cell disease may get acute chest syndrome. Therefore, the use of thromboprophylaxis, therefore, the use of penicillin prophylaxis becomes very, very pertinent. This is why we also need to use thromboprophylaxis seven times the risk of pulmonary embolus if you have sickle cell disease compared to those without. Dating scan allow us to accurately date the pregnancy. Anomaly scan becomes very, very important, which we do for every mother from 20 weeks onward. But for those with sickle cell disease, we should do serial growth scans every four weeks from 20 weeks. If they have low papay under 0.5, then we should do it every two weeks because the risk of stillbirth is high. Placental MRI is under research, and we hope that we may be able to allude to more information, more stratification in terms of those who are seriously at risk. During pregnancy, the mother may have painful crisis. Treat the same way in pregnancy as outside. Treat the same way like you do outside pregnancy as in pregnancy, with very few caveats. Clearly, they should be well hydrated with appropriate fluid balance because the risk of pulmonary edema is high. They may be on analgesia such as non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, and that could be used up to 28 weeks. Clearly, ensure that the renal function is normal before doing so. They, by and large, you have paracetamol, dihydrocodone at home, but if they do come into hospital, they may need stronger opiates. And in this scenario, using sometimes a pain-controlled or patient-controlled analgesia, managing in high-dependence units in a timely fashion, so within 30 minutes that they arrive with pain, we should ensure that their pain is kept under control. And we often assess and monitor this in our high-dependence units if they require PCA ensuring that the oxygen saturation is more than 94%. If it's less than 94%, we do blood gases. And if there's significant oxygen deterioration, then we should look for causes such as pneumonia in terms of chest ray, thromboembolism or pulmonary embolism in terms of VQ, spiral CT. And sometimes we may also need to do an echo to assess as a result of heart failure or pulmonary. Uh, edema. So very pertinent that if they come in with chest symptoms, we actually address this very timely and save lives. This is the reason why in the strategy we use for thromboembolism, uh, prophylaxis. So for those with sickle cell disease, we ensure that from 28 weeks, they should have um, low dose, low molecular weight heparin. If there is other associated risk factors, such as increase in age, such as increase in parity, then we start from the booking in terms of the low dose, low molecular weight uh, heparin. Um, and clearly this will make a huge difference, particularly if they have seven times the risk of pulmonary embolus in those with sickle cell disease compared to those without. Transfusion, clearly that decision in terms of prophylactic 
versus selective transfusion, prophylactic versus emergency transfusion is still at an equipoise. These are some of the retrospective studies, some alluding to the high risk of adverse effects, such as alloimmunization, hemolytic disease of the newborn, leading to perhaps not advocating um, prophylactic uh, exchange blood transfusion. But the current practice in the UK, from our UCOS data, alludes to the fact that 24% did require blood transfusion, 45% in the SS only 5% in the SC. And 15 had top-up transfusion, 11 women had exchange blood transfusion. So important to look at these some of these studies very carefully. So we looked at Koshi's paper, almost 20 years old. Clearly, transfusion management have moved on and improved quite significantly since here. But even in this data, the painful crisis is a lot worse. Uh, look at the fetal distress, look at the fetal growth restriction, look at the stillbirth. So important for us to go cautiously in terms of if we are considering, um, if we are con considering prophylactic exchange blood transfusion. Melanoski's paper came out in 2015. Actually, uh, a systematic review meta-analysis combining randomized control trials and observational studies actually alluding to the fact that perhaps it may reduce uh, mortality uh, significantly. But the data was very small. The data combined observational with interventional data. And hence, we have to critically say that perhaps this is not reflective of what really may happen. So it's important that the risk of preeclampsia didn't change. It's important that the risk of preterm delivery did, didn't change. So we have to do a definitive trial to establish whether serial prophylactic exchange blood transfusion may actually make a difference to this significant adverse outcome to the mother, to the baby, to the intervention of delivery. And clearly, to do so requires us to do a randomized control trial in this group, having a composite outcome measure. But to do that, we need to actually ask our mothers whether this is possible and they will agree to this. We have to ask our hematologists, our midwives, our obstetricians, whether they will agree to this trial. So before we embark on a definitive study, we applied to NIHL for a grant to do a TAPS-2 study to assess the feasibility and acceptability of conducting a randomized control trial to establish whether clinically it is clinically effective and also cost effective to embark on this trial. We assess the willingness of our mothers, the willingness of our hematologists, our nurses, our midwives, our obstetricians to do this. And only by doing so that would we be able to find an evidence-based strategy to prevent some of these adverse outcomes during pregnancy. We, if we can't use um, hydroxycarbamide, if we can't use um, medications that may change the manifestation of the disease, then we are only left with exchange blood transfusion, and hence it makes this trial very pertinent. Clearly, mothers who are at risk of having a, an offspring with sickle cell disease may need amniocentesis, may need 
chorionic villus sampling with the risk of miscarriage in 2021. Can't we do better? So the SCIP study alludes to the fact that perhaps we should focus on non-invasive prenatal diagnosis, using the mother's blood, screening for fetal DNA, and making that diagnosis there. And again, currently, we are doing that study. I've shown you our publication on the pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. And currently, we are also looking at in utero gene therapy, as well as possibly the need for uh, in utero stem cell transplantation. We published recently a review on this to ensure that some of the solutions that could come through women's health, we are actually trying to tackle. Currently, we may be the tip of the iceberg, the details we need to apply for grants to do. But thank you very much. I think based on these guidelines, we have significant hope to do much better. Thank you.